Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Mackinac, Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skorup of the Mackinac Center. This show is brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism. You can learn how we provide citizens with news to expose government overreach and abuse at frankbeckmancenterforjournalism.com. Well, it's a new year of governing in Lansing. We're going to unpack what's on the agenda for the Democratic-controlled legislature and the Republican opposition with incoming Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt and David Gunther of the Mackinac Center. And the state's minimum wage just went up, but a court ruling in February could cause it to jump dramatically. We'll chat with Justin Winslow of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association about what that means for small businesses. And as the Democrats look poised to repeal right to work, We'll unpack a brand new poll that shows strong support for keeping the law here in Michigan. We'll be back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac on Michigan show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. And I'm Jaris Cora. And for the first time in 40 years, the Democrats are going to control the Michigan Senate by a two-seat margin. Uh, and we are speaking to the incoming minority leader for the Republican Senator, Eric Nesbitt, is on the line. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. So this is the first time you've been in the legislature for 10 plus years now, right, Eric? And this is, but always in the majority. Um, and uh, so now that the Republicans in the, are in the minority, what do you expect that, that the Democrats are going to do now that they're in control? And uh, how, what's the Republican focus going to be? Uh, they spend so much time in the majority. Uh, switching gears to the minority, what's the focus going to be for you guys? I mean, our goal is to present uh, our conservative positions, free market ideas and policies is common sense for a better future and lay the groundwork, um, you know, for, for that and to fight against any far left radical liberal agenda. The Democrats and even Governor Whitmer a few weeks ago said that they didn't have a mandate with only a one seat majority in both the House and, and Senate. Uh, she won by a large margin. However, in the legislature, it was a lot closer. And so we will work uh, to make Michigan a better place, raise a family, run a small business, and enjoy retirement years. And I'm hopeful that we can find ways to pass tax relief for all Michigan hardworking families, because let's face it, budgets are already stretched. But unfortunately, I'm concerned that they would pick out their certain groups to give uh, tax relief to only special groups instead of to everybody. Uh, With the economy going into, I think, a weaker spot, uh, I know as a caucus, as a Republican caucus, we're going to continue to fight for small businesses and build a healthy economy across the board, not just government picking winners and and losers. I also think there's some areas where probably uh, get together on education, skill, trades, training are vital to each person. You know, not everybody has to go on to college. You can work to, you know, folks, uh, there's shortages of folks uh, working with their hands, and whether it's plumbing, pipe fitting, laborers, et cetera, um, and empowered to find successful careers that support families along with following educational paths of, of their choosing. And then ways to there are ways to modernize our roads, bridges, and water systems without a without tax increase. And so, those are kind of the main areas that I'm going to focus on, uh, and and going to continue to focus on is, is a Republican caucus. 
So Senator Nesbitt, obviously the, the last four years we've had a Democratic governor, Governor Whitmer, and we've had a Republican legislature. So obviously everything that passed has, by definition, had to be bipartisan. Um, so you've clearly worked in that area. What are, with the new legislature coming in, what do you think are some of their priorities going to be besides what you guys as a caucus have been working on with Governor Whitmer? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be up to them for to decide. And I would I would talk to the majority leader or speaker on what mm-hmm. their initial priorities are going to, going to be. And, you know, the one constitutional obligation we have is to pass a balanced budget every year. And my priorities on that is going to be paying down long-term liability, long-term debt, uh, making sure that we prioritize uh, our roads and, and bridges instead of just growing the size of uh, – of, of state government or, or, or local government, let's invest in, in actual real real infrastructure that includes cement and, and, and steel. And then also, I think ways that they're going to go on and, and increase costs on, on entrepreneurs and small businesses and increase taxes. Uh, if they're going to take away uh, school choice or other items, then we're going to fight unified against uh, those, those, those ideas and those items. On, on that line, um, are there any, you know, you guys are in the minority, you're, you're going to have to negotiate, you're going to have to work together, but are there any hardline issues, um, really high priority issues of the Republicans you think that it, it's just going to be, it, if it gets done, it will have to be a policy or budget item that is only done through Democrats that you think the Republicans would be united against? Um, my hope would be something like right to work, keeping Michigan a right to work state. Mm. Uh, if we're serious about economic development, you don't even get on some list if you're not a right to work state. And then in, in other states that aren't right to work states, they have to triple and quadruple the amount they have to uh, give away in, in corporate welfare. And so that's that's something where we can stand uh, united on. If there's ways to, to increase, uh, you know, freedom, uh, you know, we're always open on on those. I think the same with uh, providing uh, school choice uh, for individuals. I know there's, uh, and for families and trying to empower families, uh, that if the, the Democrats want to take away options from uh, from families and, and children, um, my hope is that we can stand united uh, against uh, against those uh, that want to take away those options and choices from uh, from students around around the state. So if they're talking tax hikes. If the Democrats are talking tax hikes, crushing regulations, or more government debt, if those are the proposed actions, then we will fight against those policies as those will be, have devastating effects to hardworking Michigan families. Uh, Senator Nesbitt, this is Kelly again. I'm wondering sort of what uh, the collaboration uh, is looking like so far uh, in, the, in, in this year. Um, have have the Republicans done any outreach to any Democrats who might be um, sort of in more conservative or moderate areas? Because they have such a small margin that they have to, the Democrats are going to have to vote as a strong block in order to get what, what they need done. Um, and have the Democrats reached out to the Republicans yet to, to talk through some of these issues and what they want to do in ways that Republicans could potentially be brought on board or it could make, you know, that there could be bipartisan solutions out there? Yeah, I mean, for example, I have a great relationship with the Republican leader in the House, Matt Hall. He and I both believe Mm -hmm. that Michigan needs to be governed by a common-sense approach that helps our economy grow, uh, provide uh, proper funding for infrastructure and education, and, 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 you know, turns a blind eye to extreme partisan pipe dreams that are from, you know, the left-wing progressives that are going to continue to work. But you're right that the Democrats have such a slim majority 
that some of these, uh, you know, for example, there's three that uh, Democrats that I would consider are in pretty competitive seats, two in Macomb County and then one in the Tri-Cities region of Midland Bay and, and, and Saginaw. And so the question is, is they may talk like moderates, but are they actually going to govern and vote like uh, like a moderate? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something where we're going to have to hold their feet to the fire to make sure that, uh, you know, if they truly want something to last uh, and be beneficial, you know, let's let's do it in a bipartisan way. For example, a few years ago, we did auto no-fault reform. First time in, in nearly 50 years where Michigan's auto insurance uh, laws were updated and it provided choice, it lowered costs, and uh, provided more options for uh, families, seniors, and drivers around the state. And that was ended up being done in a bipartisan way. And, and, and my hope is that there's staying power in that because we did it with Republicans and Democrats and the governor to lower costs. And it's actually saving billions of dollars for consumers around the state of Michigan. Uh, There's a court case that's coming up. Uh, I think it's a fairly clear, in my reading, I'm not a lawyer, but in my reading of the law was my bill from four years ago that, uh, you know, that they're dealing with as whether it'll raise the cost on consumers or not. And and we'll likely see uh, something this this summer on that, but I, I hope we can all get together and say this has been working. It's driving down costs for uh, for drivers and families here in Michigan. Uh, let's not uh, go back to the battle days when we had uh, the fastest growing and most expensive auto insurance in the nation. Senator Eric Nesbitt, the incoming Senate Republican leader in the minority, we appreciate you coming on the show today, giving us a picture of what this year is going to look like, and uh, we hope you f- hold their feet to the fire as necessary and work with them where you can. <laughs> thank you, Senator. Well, well, thank you. Happy New Year, and the battle begins. <laughs> there it does. Thank you, Senator Nesbitt. And we'll be back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac on Michigan show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac, Michigan show brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jarrett Skorup. And we're talking next with David Guntner with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He is their head of all things government. He goes out and meets with the lawmakers. He's got a great pulse on what's happening in Lansing, um, pitching all the great ideas that Mackinac has to the people uh, who in power in the legislature. Uh, and in a new year, David Guntner, welcome to the show. Um, what do you expect is going to happen? I think everybody is still trying to figure that out. <laughs> what you have is a new legislature uh, and a new political environment in Lansing that the Democratic Party not only retained all the statewide offices and the majorities there, but they also won one-seat majorities in both the Senate and the State House. Mm-hmm. The Senate was a scenario that they thought was possible. The House was one that they didn't. And I think everyone was caught surprised by that. Uh, What you have now is the first time that the Democrats have had all of the levers of state government since 1984. Uh, I'll let... uh, you two guys decide how you date yourself. I was in seventh grade the last time that mm-hmm. uh, the Democrats had all the all the levers of power in Michigan. So what's going to be a challenge for them is they've got an almost 40-year wish list of things that they've wanted to accomplish on the policy agenda, but that they have 
a very, very, very narrow mandate to move on any of them. And you've also got a number of districts where they won with less than 50 percent of the or less than 55 percent of the vote, which is the generally accepted measure for a district that can change hands in the next election. And at least two of them where their candidate won with less than 50 percent of the vote because of third party candidates. So the challenge is going to be how you keep everyone happy, how you produce the wins and deliver the results that the people who voted you wanted without sacrificing uh, those majorities starting in two years. And David, it's, so, it's worth noting as you go through that, in the Senate they have a couple extra seats. In the House they only have one extra seat. It's got to, everything's got to get through the House, too. So there's really only a one-seat majority. And when a House vote is tied, that's a loss. They have to, right? yeah. they have to vote in block. Yeah, and, and I, I would say, but what's interesting also, uh, and the Senate is also a one-vote majority. They don't have the extra margin. And what's important right. to know about the Senate is that the constitutional requirement is 20 votes that if you have any member of the Democratic caucus vote no on something or that they're absent that day, that you wind up having a situation where if it's 19 to 19, a Republican mm-hmm. can disappear from the floor or vote uh, present. And that doesn't create the tie that allows the lieutenant governor to break the tie. Wow. And another thing that will be interesting and could come up if you have a uh, a very leftward-leaning uh, Democratic agenda is that if you – the Democrat members in the House, particularly the ones from southeast Michigan, have a penchant for being absent. Some of them, a lot of the time, if you go on to michiganvotes.org – and look up the roll call reports as far as which members had the most missed votes during the previous two years. Mm-hmm. Of the 16 most missed votes among members, 14 of them are Democrats. Eight of them are returning. The two Republicans who show up in the midst of that 16, one of them had a PPO at the time, keeping him off the floor most of last mm-hmm. year, and the other, unfortunately, passed away from stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. So... You can have situations where if you have members who aren't uh, showing up or are or disenchanted with the caucus or the job, mm-hmm. uh, there are two Democrats who are looking at running for mayors of their communities in the May elections this year. If those seats go vacant, all of a sudden your pathway to getting things done uh, becomes very narrow to non-existent. And if relations between the caucuses go bad, uh, that could create some very interesting parliamentary maneuvering and disruptions in the overall legislative process. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and the read on this is I, I think Governor Whitmer signed 900 bills or something like that last session on uh, the last term. Um, so the nearly all of them, I, I, actually, I guess all of them were bipartisan. Um, so... I think we can expect probably most items are going to be bipartisan. Others will maybe not be. But what do you think, um, what are the big issues you think they're going to be tackling early in the term based on, on what you're hearing? 
Uh, as far as the early bills, I think two of the first ones that are going to come out are the addition of the LGBTQ uh, protections into the Elliot Larson uh, Non-Discrimination Act. Uh, the Democrats have made clear they're going to repeal the 1931 abortion law that's already been found unconstitutional. Uh, those will come up very early in the session, potentially first things, and I would expect that one of those uh, will be either SB1 or House Bill 4001, which are the first bills of the session. Uh, beyond that, you know that there's going to be a lot of stuff undoing the accountability reforms in education that Republicans have done, particularly over the last 10 to 12 years. Uh, there will be uh, a number of labor reforms. I expect that they will not start with right-to-work repeal, but that they will do something on prevailing wage early on. There's some supplemental spending that the governor wants to get done early. Uh, also, some economic development stuff, more pro more money into the SOAR fund, at least initially. There's been conversations starting last year about creating a permanent revolving fund that can be used for uh, corporate welfare programs. Mm -hmm. I do not expect them to do right to work until later in the spring, uh, looking at the March-April window as a time when that could move. Also, if they don't do it then, I think it's I think they probably would wait until November because of the two mayor races, the ability to be able to get stuff through the House. November also takes recall elections out of the equation, and it also um, limits the time between when the bill passes and when it can be enacted because there's no way that right to work repeal would get immediate effect any bill that they pass this year that doesn't have immediate effect won't be implemented until april of 2024 so if they move it early then you have a lot of legal maneuvers you have the option of a voter referendum to uh, nix it before it takes effect things of that sort. David, what should the Republicans be focused on? They're, they're, they have to adjust somewhat. We just had Senator Eric Nesbitt, the minority leader, on. He's going to have to learn to adjust from being in the majority his his career to now being in the minority, um, which is strategically challenging, and, and, and you don't get to introduce what you want necessarily. But what can Republicans focus on on a policy side that they might be able to get traction on in a bipartisan way where it comes from the Republican side instead of the Democratic side trying to pull them over? I think number one thing that they need to do is to hold their votes and their caucus unity. Their power is in their numbers. Mm -hmm. And that if the Dems are going to move a, a left agenda, that they need to make the Democrats who are in the marginal districts pay the price for every one of those votes. On the policy side of things, there may be some possibilities around open records, there's been the long-running controversy over adding the governor and the legislature to the state's open records laws. That's not happened largely because of Senate opposition from members who aren't there. That's, I think, clearly an area where there's bipartisan interest. There may also be some bipartisan interest in going further than just opening up those two bodies to open records, but also fixing some of the ways that the process hasn't worked. And Steve DeLee, um, 
it can come on the program. He's uh, uh, our leads our open records activities. He can talk to you about some of the shenanigans that we ran into trying to figure out how state decisions over COVID were being managed. Mm -hmm. There may be some stuff around criminal justice, although I think a lot of that is going to become tougher to find those spots where uh, conservatives and progressives wind up landing on the same spot. But if you're talking about things such as uh, reentry programs and uh, ways to better ensure safe communities, I think there's opportunities around that. David, we're going to have to leave it there. David Gunther with the Mackinac Center. We appreciate you coming on the show, giving us a picture of what the coming legislative year is going to look like in Lansing. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. And we'll be back with more after a brief break here on the Mackinac Michigan Show on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jared Scora. And minimum wage just went up to $10.10 at the mm-hmm. start of the year. Just had a jump, but a legal battle could increase that dramatically to over $13, I think, as soon as next month. We've got Justin Winslow. He's the head of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association on the line. Justin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So first, can you kind of lay out what's happened here? Uh, can you explain how this court case came about and what sort of arguments are being hashed out in the courtroom right now about the minimum wage? Well, happy to and try not to go too much into the weeds. Yeah, here. Keep, keep it for the layman. Keep it for me. <laughs> uh, it all goes back. You know, I think people think of this now as a, mi- a minimum wage specific issue. It really is a constitutional issue around what the legislature can and can do with potential ballot issues, uh, citizen-initiated laws. It goes back to 2018. There were two ballot proposals, one around the minimum wage and one around uh, paid sick time off for workers that the legislature made the effort to adopt them, uh, which means they went off of the ballot or they did not get to the ballot. And the legislature adopted them, making them law, but before they would be implemented, uh, enacted an amended version of them, making them a little less onerous for business, uh, small businesses and large businesses alike, frankly, uh, and, and and therein lies the challenge. Uh, a, a lawsuit came uh, several years later. Note that several years later uh, is, is when a lawsuit was uh, filed in 2021 claiming unconstitutional what the legislature did. A court of claims judge, uh, to my surprise, frankly, uh, agreed with him, uh, and that set off a, a tailspin starting in last July, that, that these 2018 laws as originally adopted were going to uh, be thrust into into law, uh, changing three years' worth of, of understanding by businesses in Michigan. And so we've been watching very closely. Uh, we've seen a court of appeals hearing that happened in December that would challenge that ruling, and we're waiting on that ruling right now. So businesses right now are in that in-between where they don't know whether the status quo as they've experienced it for the last several years is going to continue to go forward or whether a rather abrupt change to how they do business and for restaurants specifically a very scary change to how they do business is coming in the near future yeah on that point on the scary change so everywhere i drive right now i see burger king hiring at 14 bucks an hour i think there's a lot of there's just such a need for workers right now and that might tailor off at some point but we're talking about most jobs that are paying well above the mandated 
minimum wage. Um, so, and so for your point, why, why do you feel that this is scary for, for businesses? Well, I think the minimum wage would be a bit of a jump overall, but to your point, I think it's less about the top line minimum wage and more for full service restaurants, restaurants mm-hmm. that use uh, tipped employees, servers, if you will, uh, that there's a, a law that exists in Michigan, that exists in 43 states that allows tipped employees to be made to pay a lower cash wage from their employer as long as tips make up the difference to at least the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. I think if anyone's dined in a restaurant, you know that that isn't even remotely close to true for most servers. In fact, in 2022, the average server in Michigan was making over $25 an hour. Uh, not too bad. Uh, right. work, but that's that's where the rub is right now. And if 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 you eliminate that tip minimum wage, that's dramatic and and challenging to the uh, to the restaurant, usually a small business uh, running that restaurant, and the ability to adopt what is a more than two hundred percent increase overnight in their in their labor costs at a time that they're still struggling post pandemic. And mm-hmm. so that's couldn't think of a worse possible time. But that's that's the rub. It's the tip credit side. It's how it impacts tipped employees. Yeah, I I have a big um, annoyance a lot with how this minimum minimum wage is portrayed. I mean, if you look at polls, most people they always say we should hike the minimum wage. They have a tough time thinking of it. Uh, a lot of the media coverage, um, the minimum wage employees are 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 you know a single mom who's this is their only source of income. It's just wildly different than the the reality of this. And and I tell people from the policy perspective, the the cost of the minimum wage is is the mandates on the restaurants and on the businesses that are trying to comply with this. The vast majority of minimum wage workers are, my, my wife makes minimum wage, and the vast majority are people like her, which is they're a second or third income in that household. They're, they're a spouse that's just trying to, that's working part-time. They're a, a college student or a high school student that is in a household that is well above minimum wage. Most minimum wage earners, in fact, um, are in higher income households. I think people don't realize that. They don't realize what a small part of the economy this is. And when you do hike the minimum wage, you actually are, businesses are, uh, there's a cost of that, which is which is more lost jobs. And the people who are laid off are precisely the people we want to help. It is the, the single mom um, that is less educated. It is the high school student. It is people trying to get their first jobs because, you know, to your point, those businesses are less likely to take a risk on employers like that, whereas they might keep someone on, like my wife who has a bachelor's degree and it is more reliable and has been in the workforce for a while. So I always just worry about this issue because it is exactly harming the people that we should want to help here in the economy. Yeah, I don't think I could have said it better or agreed more. And I think it's even more obvious and compelling when you get to the server side, which is such an issue where where labor and management are aligned mm-hmm. in, in a belief that this system works pretty darn well right now. They all want customers. Uh, they want mm-hmm. customers in the door. Yep. And they like being individual entrepreneurs. They make mm-hmm. better money, uh, the better that they are at their job. And it, and it shows. And it's why it's so easy. It's fascinating to me. This, uh, this group on the other side has been trying to eliminate the tip credit in Michigan for a decade has spent close to $10 million in, in, in several attempts, and there's no grassroots that are there behind them to say this is the change we need. It doesn't exist. Those are fake grassroots in Michigan, but all we have to do is talk about this issue, and servers are coming out of the woodwork to say, this is insane. I, I love this process. I love the flexibility. I love the money I'm making. Why would we change this system to make sure that I make less money? And by the way, forty to 60,000 servers probably lose their job 
for the exact reason that you ref- you referenced that the the o- the overhead to the employer is so dramatic that they have to change their business model and they wouldn't employ servers to the same degree that's bad for the customer it's obviously bad for the many people making great money as servers right now and so tell me what problem we're trying to fix yeah and there there, there have been studies on this and and one of the key studies on hiking the minimum wage that dramatically is it is not a redistribution of income from wealthy corporations or something down to people. It's a redistribution of money within the employers uh, and their customers. So customers paying higher prices and then also taking the money that previously was as tips for those servers, um, getting rid of the tip system altogether and kind of redistributing the money among the workers where some people are better off and then a lot of people are worse off. And that's not really how we're being sold um, the minimum wage issue as, you know, we're just taking money from rich corporations and giving it to to the working poor or something along those lines. That's just not really how it works. That's not what's happening. No, and you also have to – most people don't understand this, but as, but business owners, what when, – the businesses pay taxes in addition to your taxes on your wages, right? They pay a payroll tax to match what you're paying effectively. When your wage goes up, their taxes go up independent of how much you're paying in tax, too. So it's an added cost layer on top of even that mm-hmm. when you raise the wages uh, um, mandatorily. And you like make it that. up in some way, which is yeah. often fewer workers. Yeah, or raising prices. And we already are dealing with, with you know rising prices uh, in the restaurant industry as well as food's gone up so much. Um, yeah. Justin, I, 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 well, first, if you've got any thoughts or comments on, on our exchange there. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. The few states, there's only a handful of states that don't operate with this, this separate tip credit, mm-hmm. and they operate mm-hmm. in their restaurants uh, with fewer, fewer employees uh, and much higher prices uh, than you see here. And I, I think... Again, because we're coming out of the pandemic with such high inflation in the way in the wake of that, restaurateurs have already had to take pretty substantial price increases over the last year and a half to try to have to throw on even more. I don't. I, I think at some point you're going to see consumer revolts, and that's bad for for everyone involved in this industry as well. Yeah, I want to go back to this sort of constitutional question, which is where we started about this minimum wage court case, and the thing that I'm sort of confused about, or maybe I shouldn't be confused about, but the argument that that this should be what was put on the ballot and passed by the legislature is so interesting to me because it's based on the the idea that that the people have decided this independent of the legislature and the people are are the people who you know that that's what the constitution empowers is the people this never made it on the ballot the people never voted for this and we don't even know whether they would have voted for this is that a fair argument that's being made yeah, I think you're you're talking about a couple hundred thousand people that signed something of which they are not exactly clear in what they signed to begin with, not not anywhere near a, a vote of the majority of the people. So what you did have, though, is the legislature who is elected by uh, large swaths of the population across the state, uh, and they're also held accountable if you didn't like what that they did uh, and, 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 are, and had the opportunity to be voted out of office or a referendum on this legislation could have been passed as well. So constitutionally, there are options for them. They just weren't pursued and because I just don't think there's an outcry here. Mm-hmm. Justin Winslow, we got to leave it there with the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. So appreciate your time today coming on chatting about the minimum wage. Thanks, Justin. Anytime. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we'll be back with more of the Mackinac Michigan show here on WJR.
Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jarrett Squirrel. And repealing right to work consistently seems to be on the Democrats' agenda as they take control of Lansing this year. Over a dozen polls have been conducted on this issue that I found that there's a lot on Mackinac's uh, website, on the Mackinac Center's website, and almost all of them, or all of them, I think, so a sizable majority in favor of keeping the freedom to opt out of a workplace uh, union, keeping right to work in place. A new poll was just uh, released this month, and Michael Myers from Target Point Consulting, who conducted it, is here to give us an overview of what you found. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. So what did you find? What's the what's the top-level data that you found in your poll on right to work here in Michigan? I mean, the top line that we see here is that, that clearly Michigan voters uh, support the right-to-work law, uh, two-to-one margin. Uh, we showed 58% support statewide, only 29% opposed, a um, few folks undecided. But, but this is not an issue that they're unfamiliar with, uh, and we certainly saw strong support for it. Was there was there any breakdown that you can give us, Democrat, Republican? Did you look at union households, non-union households? Uh, can you parse through some of the data for us on on if there's any any segment of the population that stands out as being more supportive or less supportive than others? Yeah, I mean, the, what really stood out to me was the union support for this legislation. Uh, just about sixty percent of union voters su- support this legislation and and see value in it. Uh, they're no more interested in being forced into unionization than, than just about anybody else. Uh, Republicans did have uh, have more support for that. We showed 70% of Republicans supporting that, uh, lower amongst Democratic voters, but but still most Democrats supporting this legislation, uh, and really strong support amongst independents. Uh, again, better than two-to-one support amongst independents. More than 60% of those voters, those key swing voters that so many politicians want to pay attention to, strongly support this legislation. Michael, yeah, I, I had done an article um, looking at all the polling that I could find going back about 20 years on the right-to-work law. So this was the 10 years preceding Michigan even having the law, and then also the 10 years since the right-to-work law passed here in the state. And this is from, uh, you know, Republican pollsters, Democratic pollsters, liberal groups, conservative, news media, and almost every single poll uh, was fairly in line with what with what you found. I would say that there's a higher knowledge of the law now. There are, there are less undecideds. But overall, you see the vast majority of people support a right-to-work law. So that being the case um, from all these sources, why do you think it is a potentially on the agenda of of the incoming legislature to repeal the law? I mean, the, the only thing, the only conclusion you can make of why Democrats would be so supportive of this in the legislature would be that, that they're serving the special interests that help get them elected. Uh, there, there's very little public support. There's very little public outcry for this. Uh, and the union bosses simply want to be able to command workers to join their union. Uh, and you can understand that. Why, why wouldn't we want that? I would like to command people to conduct more polling. That would be great for my business, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you mentioned the, the the polling that's been done, and obviously the most accurate polling we ever get is when people actually go to the, the polling booth. And people had people voted on this ten years ago in Michigan, and we see that same kind of level of support. Uh, just about sixty percent of people supported right to work then, and sixty percent supported today. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't remember that the unions put a ballot proposal on. They put it on the ballot for people to vote, and and they said this was to prevent a right to work law from going into place, and and people um, did not agree with them, and and here we are. We we got the law. Um, 
the the uh, other part of that that I was really interested in is the are are you doing some polling uh, statewide? Did you look at different parts of the state or legislative districts um, and the polling on on how that breaks down? Yeah, we we looked across obviously the entire state. This is a statewide sample. Uh, every media market uh, uh, that we saw in the state was supportive of this. Uh, whether that was the Detroit market, the Grand Rapids market, the northern Michigan markets, uh, all of them so showed strong support uh, for this legislation. And we did go down and, and conduct a lot of individual district polling, too, to see how that looked. Uh, we polled from districts from Monroe to Marquette, uh, St. Joe to Sault Ste. Marie, uh, and every single one of those districts showed most people supporting this legislation. Michael Myers with Target Point Consulting. We appreciate it. I think that poll is on Mackinac.org, Mackinac Center's website, uh, and everyone should check it out. There's a blog post about it that I think, Jerry, you might have done with all the other polls that were done as well mm-hmm. as this one, too. That's fascinating. Michael Myers with Target Point Consulting, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for tonight. You can check out this show and all our others by heading to frankbeckmancenterforjournalism.com or thegreatvoice.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Mackinac on Michigan show here on WJR. Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio.